Well, that uh, was a beautiful song. I am grateful, Andrew, you didn't play that guitar. Uh, that would have been bad. For those who play guitar, having a guitar in that condition, that's the stuff nightmares are made of. So just be aware of that. Uh, as Eric mentioned earlier, we are embarking on a new series today. We're starting the book of 1 John. And as we do so, I am really excited about this particular passage that God has us here right now because so many of the issues addressed in this wonderful epistle are things we're dealing with today, as, as we'll see as we travel through it. And, and the, the book is amazing. It's, it's sort of some of the most simple uh, Greek you're ever going to read. Most people, if, you've, if you're hearing you've learned Greek, this was the book you translated first. Uh, so it's simple grammatically, and yet with what it communicates, there's such a beautiful depth uh, to, to what uh, John describes and expresses here. Uh, so much so that as we travel through, I think all of us are going to be really struck uh, by just how amazing it is. That the, so that obviously, the Holy Spirit wrote this text. Uh, there's no other way to see such simple grammar convey such depth of thinking and truth and, and the impact that it will have on our, our lives today. Um, the Apostle John who wrote this, I just was thinking we should talk a little bit about this guy uh, because he, uh, he's a guy who... Uh, was the last surviving member of the 12 disciples. I mean, think about what that would be like. Uh, for some of us here, we're way too young to even have that happen in our life. Others of us are here ha- have experienced that. But it's hard to be the last one left. It's painful. There's, there's difficulty in that. And, and John wrote five books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John which looks back and presents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to be going through 1st John, but um, it talks about, you know, how we need to live now and things to be aware of. And then he also wrote the book of Revelation, which which looks to the future and shows how God will consummate history and and how Jesus is going to return. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and, and, and all of those things that it looks ahead to. So, as we look at this particular book, it, uh, there's, a, there's an account of the apostle that I love. If you've been with this for several years, you've, you've heard this before, but I think it's worth bringing up again. Uh, it comes from the account of 4th century historian Eusebius uh, in his third book, chapter 23, of his work entitled Church History. And he, he begins this account of the apostle John in this way. He says, listen to a tale, which is not a mere tale. Uh, But it's a narrative concerning John the Apostle, which has been handed down and treasured up in memory. And and John had just returned from exile on the island of Patmos, and he was traveling around, and he was ministering to different churches uh, in the region of of, uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey now. So so that's where he's at, and he's going around from town to town, and he comes to, to one particular church, and there's a young man there at the church. And so he looks to the pastor of the church, and he says, hey... I'm, I am committing this one to you, and this is how he puts it, in all earnestness, in the presence of the church, and with Christ as witness. And so the bishop agrees to disciple this young man. And then John leaves and continues to travel throughout the region, returns to his home in Ephesus. And so the bishop begins training up this young man. And he's been baptized, he's being instructed, but then something happens. And, and there's a way in which uh, this young man begins to drift away from the faith. And the way it's described is that he's enticed by costly entertainments, unquote. Now, what that is, I don't know. I mean, we think of entertainment, we're like, you know, yeah, YouTube, Netflix. That wasn't what it was, obviously. But there was some way in which this young man was caught up in, in, in the world around him in such a way that eventually uh, he becomes a part of a group of bandits. 
And eventually, he actually becomes the leader of this group of bandits. And he's known as sort of like this hardened criminal. Man, he's feared uh, by those in that region. And so John, after, after a time, he, he comes back and, and visits the church. And he talks to this pastor and he says this, Come, O bishop, restore to us the deposit which both I and Christ committed to you, the church, or for which you preside, being witness. He said, give me the deposit I gave you. And at first, the pastor's like, the money? Are you, you gave me some money? And, and then he says plainly, I demand the young man, the soul of a brother. And the bishop's going, oh, that guy? Yeah, well, here's what's happened. He kind of explains it to John. And the apostle just looks at him and just says, a fine guard I left for a brother's soul. You're just like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, bam. And then he says, let a horse, be brought, a horse be brought to me and let someone show me the way. So John gets on a horse and rides off to where this group of bandits is. He just takes off. And eventually he comes into that area. And of course, eventually the bandits on this road where they're known to kind of attack, they grab the apostle John. He doesn't fight it. He kind of does the whole, you know, take me to your leader thing, right? That's great. And, uh, and so then the young man is described in the account as he's, he's armed. He's kind of sharpening his weapons. He's up on a hillside, kind of looking forward to the next victim kind of thing. And then as he's waiting to see the new prisoner, he turns and John's at the bottom of the hill looking up and he sees it's the apostle John. And this feared, hardened criminal is like, oh no, <laughs> kind of drops the weapons and starts backing up. Like, I don't want anything to do with this. And John, as it's described, forgets his age and pursues him with all his might. And he cries out. Here's what he cries out. He says, my son, do you flee from me, your own father, unarmed, aged? Pity me, my son. Fear not. You still have hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For you, I will give up my life. Stand, believe, Christ has sent me. <laughs> oh, man. So what happens to this hardened criminal? He just kind of slouches and starts crying. The Apostle John comes, approaches him, embraces him, and together they pray. The young man stands to him, but he takes his right hand and sort of reserves it back as though this hand has committed so much evil. I can't bear to let you even see it. And John lays hold of his hand, kisses the right hand, now purified by repentance, as Eusebius puts it, and led him back to the church. Eusebius goes on to say, and making intercession for him with copious prayers and struggling together with him in continual fastings and subduing his mind by various utterances, he did not depart, as they say, until he had restored him to the church, furnishing a great example of true repentance and a great proof of regeneration, a trophy of a visible resurrection. That's just one account of the life of John the Apostle. He's the guy that wrote the book we're about to read under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you know what's amazing to me with that account? 
is that that way of going to the lost, going to the broken, going to the hurting, the, the destitute spiritually and in every other way, he goes to bring truth, to bring confrontation, and to bring love and grace at the same time in the same moment. And that's what he's doing here in this letter. Because the church at that time was struggling. John wrote this between maybe 80, 80 and 85. And the church is now, you know, has a lot of second and third generation Christians within it. And so for, for many Christians, this was a time of persecution. For others, some of them might have been growing cold in their affections for Jesus. It's kind of gone on autopilot. You know, they were kind of doing the religious thing, but they weren't engaging fervently with the Lord. And not only that, false teachers were also infiltrating the church. And they were poisoning people with this strange, twisted teaching about who Christ really is and what he's really done. And so John writes this letter, not to any particular church. Amazingly, it's addressed uh, not in particular to a, a congregation or a person. It's just written for all to read. And we need to hear its message today as well. So if you would, go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 1. And if you would, uh, go ahead and stand in respect for God's word and follow along as I read. First John, beginning with verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would work in this passage, that your Spirit himself would would challenge us, would confront us, would comfort us, that you would have your way with us in this time now as we open your word together. We pray that we would leave here as different people than we were when we came in and that the way we engage in the world around us, the world that you've placed us in, uh, would be impacted and transformed by your work in and among us now. We ask that you'd be glorified in what you do and we thank you in advance for this beautiful truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So if you remember anything from today, uh, let it be this. This passage tells us that full confidence in Christ sparks true fellowship and joy. Full confidence in Christ sparks true fellowship and joy. And so we're going to look at how that that works as we come through the passage. But he's talking about confidence in Jesus. And, and when we look at it, we kind of go, well, how, how is this beginning? I mean, how does this thing start? Um, it, as I was studying it, I'm just kind of going, okay, here we go. What? There's no main verb until verse 3. <laughs> you know what's happening here? You can't do that, John. Well, he just did it. Okay, he did. Apparently, you can do that. Uh, and he just did. But he's got this 
way of unfolding truth where you're going, what is he talking about? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And we, we have all these descriptors given. And we find out, look at the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. There we go. He's talking about Jesus. These five descriptors are all of Jesus. And certainly, if you understand or know about John's gospel, if you've read that before, um, then you recognize, wait, I'm hearing some language from the opening of the gospel of John. Uh, again, describing the word, the logos, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate one, the one who from eternity past has dwelled with the Father, the second person of the Godhead. You know, one in essence with God, but, but, but the, the one who uh, was there at the very beginning. And so we see that, uh, you know, some, someone try to take this passage and say, well, this, he's really talking about Jesus' beginning of his ministry here. But I don't think we can get away uh, from the fact that, no, this is the one um, who is the pre-incarnate, pre-existent one. Uh, but here's what's striking. He hearkens to that, and then he says, notice next in verse 1, what we have heard, seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. He's saying that this pre-incarnate one, this eternal one from, from, from before time, is one who has entered into this world. And not only that, he's saying, I was there. I saw him. We, the apostles, together, the disciples, we personally engaged with him. Very descriptive. So, so we see that this confidence in Christ, the first thing we would find is this. It comes from true, personal, historical, eyewitness testimony. I saw him myself. I heard what he spoke. I was there. Uh, interestingly, he says uh, what we've seen with our eyes, and then in the next phrase he says what we looked at. And you're thinking, wait, isn't seeing and looking the same, the same thing? And no, actually, it, it's, a, it's a difference there. The look that has the idea of closely examining and considering something. So not only was I there and I took in the sight of Jesus, but then I was able to actually research, look in, experience, and get into the nitty-gritty details of him and his work and all that he's accomplished in his ministry. And the, and the way th these unfold in this passage, each one of these things uh, builds one upon another. It's, it's sort of like a mountain of evidence. You know, if you're in a trial and you've got one witness and you've got another witness and another witness and another witness all corroborating the same thing, well, then you've got good understanding of the facts. And that's what's happening here. Each term and phrase is adding an emphasis and description. Uh, one writer put it this way, to see is more than to hear. To behold is more than to see. To handle is more than to behold. So you can see how it's building. It means to, 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 to have an overarching and then in-depth view with an intelligent manner about something. Um, the other thing that we would see is, is that two of the, the earlier descriptors there, what we have heard and seen, uh, the tense there in the Greek is the idea of it happened at a point in time. And then the tense of the verbs later on, looked at and touched, has the idea of something that happened in the past with ongoing results. In other words, to this very day, I witnessed that. It seems like John's progressing through Jesus' ministry and then coming to the resurrection itself. 
You recall that time in the upper room. He's thinking back to that. What happened? Jesus appeared to them. And, and, and he actually touched him. Physically. So any one of these descriptors would be plenty to make you know, for a, a valid witness. But, but all, all of these unfolding one after another are exhaustive. You know, ears, eyes, hands, it's all employed. And the question now comes, well, why would John go through all this trouble to describe this? What's the issue? And, and to, to grasp that more, we need to just pause for a moment and examine uh, kind of a, a new philosophy that was emerging right around this time in the first century. Later, it would get the name Gnosticism. It wasn't quite full-blown yet. These are just the beginnings of that. But, but Gnosticism comes from the, from the Greek term to know, gnosis. And, and Gnosticism was a kind of a combination of pagan mysticism, Greek philosophy, and, and there were two main things that Gnosticism taught. One would be that the way of salvation is through a secret superior knowledge. And you can only get this if you're initiated. You got to be an insider or you can't know. The second thing they would teach is this. All matter is evil and all spirit is good. And so the Gnostics would teach things like this. Your physical body is evil, but your soul is good. And so the false teachers coming into the church... Uh, they're bringing this kind of error in, and, and what happens is now Christians are starting to live in twisted ways. So some got involved and would advocate for like an extreme asceticism, so they would punish their bodies. You know, they would whip themselves, beat themselves. They would uh, be uh, uh, cruel to their bodies. Why? Because their body's evil, and so they try to quote unquote subdue it in these kind of grotesque, externalized, kind of rigorous and legalistic ways. But the other kind of teaching that would come from this misunderstanding would be licentiousness. In other words, people would want to live however they wanted to. And typically the excuse would be, well, my body's evil, my spirit's good, so, oh well. So, you know, a husband comes home to a wife, yes, I did uh, have sexual relations with a temple prostitute in the middle of Ephesus uh, last week, but hey, that was my body. You know, my body's evil. Sorry about that. But my soul's good. At least my soul didn't do anything wrong. So you can see how you got two crazy kind of twisted ways of living that come from this. And, and uh, you know, at that point, rules don't matter. It's no big deal. Um, and, of course, we don't see people doing that today at all, right? I mean, it doesn't relate at all to our current culture. I mean, doesn't that same line of thinking happen? Uh, you know, I can, I can do whatever I'm going to do because, oh, well, you know, that's just the way my body is, you know, so I, I can... Uh, have as much sex outside of marriage or I can, you know, go, go after um, whatever's going to give me pleasure in the moment, be it external substances, um, whatever it would be. Because it doesn't matter what I do. It's no big deal. So when John is bringing this up, what he's saying, because what they would do is they would twist who Jesus is and they would say things like, well, Jesus you know, wasn't actually physical. He wasn't in a body, because that, that means he would be evil. So he couldn't be. So he was more of a, a manifestation of some sort, you know, a phantom, that's how someone put it. 
It wasn't really that. And, 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 uh, and others would say, well, no, it wasn't so much that Jesus wasn't physical. He was a person. He wasn't, you know, God. He was just a person. But the Christ, quote unquote, came upon him at his baptism and then left him just prior to the crucifixion. Because, you know, again, there could be no death. It wouldn't endure, that kind of thing. And so there's sort of these two separate entities. And so a lot of strange teaching was coming along. So, so what John does is he confronts that head on. And he says, look, Jesus was God, is God, was from the beginning, and he came in human flesh. We saw him, we encountered him, we lived with him, we touched him. The resurrected Christ physically came, demonstrating God's victory over death. And and so now what happens is there's certainty that he's proclaiming in this. You can be sure. You can know. I was there. There's that historic eyewitness testimony to have certain language like that at that time was, was not something that people really wanted to hear. And I think today, I think we find the same thing, don't we? We live in, this, in an era where any kind of certainty, any kind of this is true, automatically people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's true for you. You do you. And it's sort of like, okay, yeah, but... You guys, if you really try to apply that in life and in living, it's nonsensical. We can't do that. As a matter of fact, you're saying one thing is certain in that moment, that you need to do you. Okay, there you go. So you're doing the very same thing. It's inescapable. But our society has gotten rid of this idea of absolutes, and instead there's sort of this, this kind of like arbitrary way of dealing with, with truth and every opinion and every philosophical sort of rabbit trail. Um, every thought, it all has to be valid unless you claim that something is absolutely true. Then, no, you can't do that. (laughs) Which, again, is another absolute, right? And and we find the same thing, sadly, creeping into the church today in the same way that John did there in the first century. There's sort of this inclusiveness that, that tolerates every possible viewpoint on every possible thing. And again, if you try to say, no, actually, the Bible says a certain thing, a certain truth, especially about the person of Jesus, people are like, whoa, what are you, how dare you? Um, many even who we would consider to be leaders within the quote-unquote church or Christian movement, pastors, writers, podcasters, they, they can claim that no one can know for certain what the Bible says or what it means. That's really popular today. Uh, the, the, the kind of progressive Christianity movement right now would say things like the Bible is so obscure, anyone who, who actually pulls uh, truth out of the scriptures or exegetes scripture, they should be very cautious. I think the phrase they'll use a lot is you need to be humble, be open-minded regarding saying there's a meaning here of any kind. You, know, you really can't do that. And, uh, and really what, what happens is without quite coming out and just saying it, it's more of a subtle attack, but they're really saying that God has not been clear about what he's written in his word. It really is an attack upon God. It's just really polite and subtle. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think back to G.K. Chesterton wrote something many years ago, a philosopher um, 
from ages past, he talks about how there's a humility growing. Um, but he goes on to say, but we're putting humility on, the way he put it, we're putting on the wrong organ, or we're putting on the wrong part of ourselves. And he says, we're, ra- we're raising an entire generation that is too humble to believe, then they can believe in the multiplication table. You know, wait, you're saying, you know, there's a math fact? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Two plus two is four? Are you sure? Like, whoa, let's not get carried away. I mean, that's what he's talking about. Again, absurd. But that's what we've come to. But, but this attack has been ongoing, and it's, and it's something that will happen. You know, false teachers have been attacking the church since the first century, and they will until the end of the age. We're told that. Uh, we spent time on that together uh, a couple weeks ago. But in, in stark contrast with this idea of, well, who can know or be, you know, let's not make, be, be too declarative here or, or make strong, strong statements about truth. What does Jesus say? <laughs> Jesus says stuff like this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth. Uh, I did the work in the Greek on that, and you know what the truth means? It means the truth. As in like identifying point. There is a specific truth that is true. And we find this throughout the scriptures. There's other places too. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I mean, there you go. I mean, you want to have a map that tells you that every direction is the right direction? And by the way, if you get as frustrated with Google Maps as I do, you've had that happen to you before. Yeah, every direction gets you there. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. And some are really bad. And sometimes you're like, why am I on this road right now? I should never have listened to you. You know you're having a bad day when you're having an argument with AI in your car, okay? You're just, that's a bad day. But the word of God is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Why? Because there's a specific path. Uh, we find the same thing in, in the New Testament, Luke 1, 4, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. That's what Luke is saying before he writes the gospel. You can know not just the truth, but the exact truth. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. In this very epistle later, John the Apostle is going to say this. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So again, this idea of, you know, absolute all-inclusiveness, relativism, whatever you want to call it, It's not only nonsensical in the actual real world. You can't live that way. Um, Those who would hold to it deny it at the same time with the statements that they make against absolute truth. But the Bible clearly tells us that the current attack on the scriptures claiming they're unknowable is really attacking the divinely designed clarity of scripture. And, and the result of that is, is to have a loss of certainty, a loss of confidence. And brothers and sisters, when we get pulled into those things, we end up living a life 
that, that lacks confidence in Christ, that lacks confidence in God, and then we miss out on his blessings. The ones described here this morning, we miss out on true fellowship. We also miss out on joy. So here, the apostle's bringing forward God's eternal purpose. And he's saying, God, from before time began, that which was, from the beginning, he had Jesus incarnated. Jesus came. He was born a man. He took to himself a human nature, an actual, physical, real human body. He was really 100% man and 100% God. How does that work? I do not know. There's mystery. There's a lot of mystery here. But just because something's mysterious doesn't mean it isn't true. And when he comes to the conclusion of verse 1, notice what he says. We've touched our hands concerning the word of life. What's he talking about? Well, certainly he's talking about the message of the gospel. He's certainly talking about Jesus himself. Jesus is the word. Jesus also brought the gospel, the good news. The good news is about Jesus. We don't want to parse those two things apart and rip them apart. No, Jesus is the message. He is proclaimed. But this idea of of life really brings forward this meaning of something that is life-giving. It's the word of life. It's the word that brings life. We find that other places in, in John's gospel where Jesus is the light of life. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the water of life. So this is the idea that, that uh, Christ himself and the message about him actually instills and brings life. It also means this. You've never really lived until you've come to know him. Until you come to Jesus by faith, until you trust him, you've never actually lived. And the invitation to you today is that you would turn to him by faith and trust him. Come to him, the word of life. Know what it means to be brought into that relationship with him. The relationship that he then brings between you and and God, because you're separated from God by your sin. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. But God has caused, caused the iniquity or the sin of all of us to fall on Jesus. And in our place, Jesus lived the perfect life, and then he died the death that we deserve. And now all who turn to him can have their sins separated from them as far as the east is from the west. The Bible tells us that they're buried in the depths of the sea, never to return. Do you want to know what it means to live? Come today to the word of life. Trust Jesus. In verse 2, Paul brings us into a parenthetical thought, and he's describing the incarnation the life that he just described was manifested or shown. And then he takes up a lot of the same descriptors and, and utilizes them again. And we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about what he talks about in, in, in John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's clearly going against the false teachers who would say, God would never do that. God would never do that. Flesh is evil. He would never become or take to himself a human nature. No way. And John's saying, absolutely he would, and he did. And that is part of his mysterious and beautiful purpose. In verse 3, he comes and says, what we have seen and heard, again, hearkening back to what he just described, we proclaim to you. Okay, finally we arrived at the main verb of the phrase. Woohoo! <laughs> What's he doing there? What does he say? I'm declaring it to you. I'm announcing it to you. I'm proclaiming it to you. This is the language of a herald. A herald back in that time, they received a message and they brought that message forward. Their goal was not to persuade. Their goal was, was not to some sort of, you know, bring in some sort of innovation or creativity to this thing. No, they've been, been entrusted with a message and they're taking this message and they're announcing it or proclaiming it. Um, this, this, oftentimes this word or term would be used concerning political events. So war or victory or defeat of an army or a solemn proclamation of a ruler. When that news was brought, it was proclaimed. And here the proclamation is, is the one of the one who was from the beginning. He has come. And we've seen him and we've heard him and we've touched him with our hands. The word of life has come. And so he says, we proclaim this, we announce this to you. So all of this is being utilized by, by the apostle here to describe the eyewitness testimony. So this confidence that he's describing, confidence in Christ, it comes from a true historical eyewitness testimony. But secondly, it also results in vibrant fellowship with God and one another. And that's what he goes on to describe in verse 3. The purpose of the declarations given. Look what it says. So that, there it is, you too may have fellowship with us. Now, fellowship, sometimes in contemporary circles, you think of the word fellowship and you're thinking, okay, all fellowship is, is it's me standing in a church building with a paper cup in my hand, drinking really bad coffee, <laughs> trying to talk to somebody. I don't know. It's just sort of a big, awkward moment. That's fellowship. And, and, and that's not fellowship, okay? That's not what it is. But by the way, at our church, we have good coffee. I just want you to know that we do. We don't mess around around here. We don't do that to people. It's mean, okay? It's mean. No, so, but um, fellowship communicates the idea of sharing together in something. Uh, if you were in the first century and you were a carpenter and you wanted to start sort of a, a carpentry guild or, or a carpentry business, you would enter into fellowship, or koinonia is the Greek word, koinonia with someone else for the purpose of forwarding that carpentry business. It means to share together in. And what's beautiful here is, is that we're, he's proclaiming this so that you may have fellowship with us. So the, the apostle is saying there is... Our message that we're bringing, the truth about the word of life, 
We're bringing this message. And when you receive this message, when you hear it, you become, when you receive it, you become a part of our fellowship. We're together in this thing. Jesus did this. And, and, uh, but, but then it gets even better. Notice he has, so there's sort of a, a horizontal element to this fellowship. We have fellowship together in Christ. But this fellowship, notice, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now there's a vertical component. It's not just this. It's this. And it's all come about because of what Jesus has done. Isn't that an astounding thing to think about? United, brought together into fellowship, into koinonia, into a sharing together, one with another as brothers and sisters in Jesus, and all of us together with God himself. Whoa. Now, you know, does having conversation and talking have something to do with how we exercise fellowship? Yes. You know, the bad coffee part is not obligatory. Talking together is important, but notice it's not just talking about anything. You know, fellowship is sharing together about God and the things of God. There's a communal element to that. It's also sharing together in the efforts to proclaim the gospel uh, here in this neighborhood and beyond. It's a sharing together of burdens and sorrows. Our church family, we, we do that. It's important. Happens all the time. There are people here amongst us now, and thankfully we share them together. The burdens of sorrows, we don't want to walk through that alone. Times of confusion, times of pain, times of just feeling like everything's dark and I'm a failure. I mean, how many people, don't raise your hand, I'll just raise mine. How many people felt felt like a failure this week? I did. Totally. Happens all, just ask Janet. Happens all the time. <laughs> you want to know, just ask her. But here's the thing. We are sharing together in Christ the word of life, the word from whom life comes, the one who implants life into those who are his. Streams of living water that flow out of all who are saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, all who are saved are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So there's a a way in which we share in things that's deeper than that. And it's it's a beautiful thing. Both both horizontal and vertical. And uh, here's the reality. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can accomplish that. Um, and and that's, that's, that's an amazing thing to think about um, because I think the world tries to solve a lot of problems on its own. Man, how can we get all people together? Man, we just got to figure this out. Have fun with that. But in Jesus, it happens. Why? Because of what he's done. And we, we've got we've to deal with, with this problem of of. Lacking hope. Okay, and so people go out and they manufacture their own hope because, hey, hope is to you what it is to you, it is to me, it's all relative, whatever. And what is it? People are just more depressed than ever. 
Well, we need more money. Well, people get more money. Guess what? They're depressed. Well, we need more opportunity. I need to advance my career. I need to have that special relationship I've always wanted. I need to have that house, the car. If I had that car, then I'd be happy. Da, 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 da. On and on. And it's just sort of chasing. That's why the Bible calls it chasing after wind. You're grasping for the wind. But in Christ, the word that brings life, you have fellowship with one another and God himself. This is a massive topic and, and, and the apostle's gonna bring us through more of it later so we'll, we'll save that for when we get there in, in, the, in the letter. But this fellowship shared among God's people with the Father and the Son is an astounding thing to consider. And it's even a better thing to live out together. So confidence in Christ comes from a true historical eyewitness testimony. It results in vibrant fellowship. And lastly, it instills growing joy. Notice verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now he's referring to our joy. I think he's referring to his own joy. He's referring to the apostles' collective joy. But he's also referring to the joy of all those who will read this writing. Um, this idea of complete means to be permanently full, permanently filled. And, and, and he's, he's uh, describing this thing that he heard from Jesus himself. You'll recall that Jesus is the one who said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's where John got that idea from the Lord himself. Uh, and Jesus would say the same thing in other places that your joy may be made full. And, and we need to understand what that is. We, we've spent a lot of time in Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you recall that, how blessed is the one who, and again, the idea would be how rich and full is the life of the one who. That's conceptually the same idea here as joy. It's not just everything in my life is going exactly the way I want it to. It's not tied to circumstance. It's tied instead to the faithfulness of God, to who he is and what he's accomplishing. It's tied to his purposes, his eternal purposes that he is carrying out right now. Now, even last week, as we beautifully heard from, from Mike, you know, Jesus reigns right now, today. He's accomplishing his will. And so joy sees who God is, sees the fellowship that we enjoy together with one another and with the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so it, it transforms our outlook on everything and transforms the way we then engage with life and those that God's placed in our life. It's, joy. it's, not, it's not just this sort of happy, sappy smile. Jesus was also, what, the man of sorrows, so again, we're not called to be the people that just sort of like put on the, okay, you know, I mean, people take a beautiful verse and trivialize and they go, yeah, that's right, the joy of the Lord is my strength, you know, you're kind of like, really? You know, and half the time, you know, they're just not dealing with reality, they're not dealing with the, tr the, the pressures and difficulties of life. John is going to deal with things here. And again, Jesus was the man of sorrows. And yet he does these things that his joy would be made full in us. How does that work? We're going to talk about that. 
I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones, though, describes joy. He puts it this way. Great 20th century preacher said this, joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There's only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, it's made complete. Just that phrase, to make joy complete, that tells us something. It tells us that human joy in a fallen world is flat, thin, vaporous, empty. It's incomplete until we come to know the word of life, Jesus. And then following him then doesn't become a drudgery. It's not like, okay, now I got to go do the right thing. Here we go. Back to the grindstone. That's not it. It's, no, I'm struggling to obey. I want to obey. I have a desire to obey. And over time, I'm growing to express my love towards him by following him. By, as Jesus says, building my life on obedience to his word, by trusting in his words rather than my own way. It's growth, but it's not drudgery. It's joy because he changes us from the inside. Full confidence in Christ sparks true fellowship and joy. When we start resting on other things, we get, we get into trouble. Um, there's a trend right now in China in recent years, and it's to build bridges into the natural environment that are made of glass and almost invisible. And the idea is that visitors can come and they can kind of see the natural environment around them and under them without anything in the way. And uh, that sounds like a great idea. I kind of like that. I like being up high. I like looking around. Janet would be like, you're crazy. Go ahead and cross the bridge, buddy. Have fun with that one. <laughs> but I love it. There's one bridge built in the Pine Mountains there, and uh, it was completed last year. It stretches 1,700 feet across the gorge. It's 650 feet in the air. And it's built with a swaying effect built into the bridge. That's right. It's intended to to kind of take the breath away of those who cross it. <laughs> and it's also designed, one, there was one bridge that was also designed to sound as if it's cracking while you're on it. <laughs> Just to add to the thrill of it all. And of course, all of this is fine and dandy until something goes wrong, you know? I mean, obviously you can see people enjoy it and all that. But folks, when something goes wrong, something goes wrong. And there came about with this particular bridge that high winds destroyed the bridge while a guy was on it. 
and he found himself clinging to the railing. Uh, he was trying to inch himself to safety, and eventually the work rescue crew was able to get him off that bridge. Um, he was simply clinging to the side and weeping at <laughs> accounts of this, just crying, which is what we would all do. But here's the thing. If our confidence rests in anything other than Christ, the word of life, this is how we're living our life. We're choosing this. Is that how you want to live? Again, full confidence in Christ sparks true fellowship and joy. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, again, cause us to grasp more and more the beauties of the one who from the beginning who's been heard, who's been seen with the eyes of the eyewitnesses, who've been looked at and touched with the hands of the, of the apostles, the word of life himself, the life that was manifest, the life that's been seen and heard and is now proclaimed to us. Lord, grace us to grasp him more and more, that our confidence would rest in him alone, that it would spark true fellowship and joy among us, that you would be glorified and that others would come to the word of life as well. It's in the name of our risen king we ask this in Jesus. Amen.